When Susan's younger sister was a little girl, she wanted so badly for her parents to change her name to Pookie. She wanted, please change my name to Pookie. I want my name to be Pookie. Now, I'm sure that in, uh, there's probably various uh, cultures and, and, and uh, countries in the world where the name Pookie uh, might actually resonate and would make sense and, and, and wouldn't strike the ear as odd. But here in southern Ontario, the name Pookie would be a rare name, I think we all would agree, that that would be quite, quite a name. That somebody named Pookie would probably be asked, what's the origins of the name Pookie? But when she was a, when she was a little girl, she was convinced um, that this was a great idea. And when her father um, denied the request, now she is older and, and wiser, and she looks back and she says, I'm really thankful that my name is not Pookie. And uh, often we uh, come to this idea of prayer, like it's quite simply a mechanism for asking to get things and then getting those things. And then when we don't get the things that we asked for, we're confused by this. And, um, but, you know, we can have great confidence in prayer, and it's not because our requests are always good. It's because God's answers are always perfect. He's not less wise than we are. He's not less loving. He's not less generous or less benevolent. And yeah, he's infinitely good. Even though, even though his answers to our prayers, we can't conceive how they could be good. But he is good. And uh, C.S. Lewis once wrote, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. My prayers don't change God, they change me. We're going to head into a study over the next couple of weeks on prayer, on God's grace for you in prayer. We're going to go line by line. <clears throat> we're going to go line by line through the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to look at the, how gospel-rich the Lord's Prayer is, what Jesus gives us. But this morning, before we get into the Lord's Prayer, we're actually going to start in Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1 is our text. And uh, there's a reason for this, and it's because um, the book of Psalms is the prayer book of the Bible. But Psalm chapter 1 is not actually a prayer. It's a meditation that gets us ready for prayer. That's instructional, and that's really intentional. We're going to explore why that is. So over the next number of weeks, as we look at prayer, I'm going to be borrowing very heavily from uh, a lot of wise men, Luther and Calvin and Augustine and the, the, a lot of the work that I did uh, in seminary with these great uh, theologians who could really excavate the grace of God in the Lord's Prayer. So if I happen to say something over the next seven weeks that strikes you as really brilliant, rest assured I didn't come up with that, okay? Just so you know. Uh, I am standing on the shoulders of great men for this series. So this morning we're going to start off with Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. Now as we expound Psalm 1, 
to see the gospel for you, to see the grace of Christ for you, because this psalm is gospel-rich. And as we do that, here's, here's the sermon in a sentence. Here's where we're going this morning. Prayer and meditation are God's gifts of grace to bless you with strength in times of weakness. That's what prayer and meditation are. They are gifts for you. They are means of God's grace to strengthen you in times of weakness. Now, the word meditate, because I said that Psalm chapter 1 is a meditation and not a prayer, which it is. Now, there's 150 psalms, which means before you get to 149 prayers, and you can pray through the psalms because David is, you know, you know, bearing his soul before God, and we can relate to the psalms, and people from all kinds of different worldviews who aren't Christians relate to the psalms because they're lament, a lot of them. They, it's human suffering. It's, oh God, where are you? What's going on in the world? What? Where are the answers for evil? Where is the justice? David's crying out, oh God, my sin, what am I doing? The evil's inside me. I can't go from here to there. The demons, I'm bringing them with me in my heart. I mean, this is what the psalms sound like, and they're prayers. But Psalm 1 is a meditation. Now, the word meditation in Hebrew, it means to mutter and to ponder and to study and to, and to use your mind and your mouth. That's what meditation is. Biblical meditation is very different from Eastern transcendental med- meditation. In transcendental meditation, you're trying to empty your mind. But biblical meditation is you're not emptying your mind to hear something. Biblical meditation is you actively and intensely fill your mind so that you can hear God's word. Because the way to hear his voice is through his word. And so Psalm 1 is a meditation, and we're going to get to, to see how this, how this, uh, how this is. Because medita- biblical meditation involves using our minds intensely because our hearts can't enjoy what we don't understand. So Psalm 1 is a psalm of meditation. It's inviting us to meditate, and we're uh, going to see this. But it's it's a lot more than just intellectual assent to information. Biblical meditation is the transforming power of God by his Holy Spirit in our hearts. And that's why Colossians 3.16, Paul writes and he says that the word of God dwells in us richly. And that word richly means it's active and it's powerful and it's doing something. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12... Uh, the Hebrew writer says the same thing. The word of God is living and powerful and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's dividing between the soul and the spirit and the bone and the marrow. I mean, it's doing something. There's a transformative power. But that transformative power doesn't come by, let's just empty our minds and try and, you know, get a word from God. We have to first fill our minds with God's word so that we can get the word of God and not our subjective thoughts and our ideas uh, from our own hearts. And so receiving God's guidance is only, is only possible by filling our, our minds and our hearts with his word and meditation in this way. And this is what Psalm 1 kind of unpacks. So how is prayer and meditation a gift of God's grace? I need to start here. Psalm chapter 1, it applies to you, but it's not about you. And we look at it, we say, well, wait a minute, it's clearly about me. It says, blessed is the righteous man who does all these things. So the proper way to interpret Psalm 1 is to go, okay, well, I want to be a righteous man who's blessed, a righteous woman who's blessed, so what I do is, you know, I don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, I don't stand in the way of sinners, I don't sit in the seat of the scorn, check, 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 bingo, bango, I'm blessed. It applies to us. There's a lot to apply here, and I'm going to get to that application because it's super important. But this psalm isn't about us. You'll remember in Luke 24, many of you were here, 
uh, for those of you who weren't, I'm going to very quickly say this. At his resurrection, Jesus says on the Emmaus Road, all scripture's about me. And he specifically says the Psalms are all pointing to what I came to come and do. The Psalms are messianic. We call them messianic Psalms. Some are overtly messianic, which means you literally read the Psalm and say, wow, this was a thousand years before Jesus, but it sounds like it's talking about Jesus. But all Psalms are messianic because they're fulfilled in Christ. He fulfilled them. This Psalm is about Jesus. He's the righteous man. He's the blessed righteous man who did the requirements of Psalm 1 perfectly as God meant for them to be done. This is really good news for you. Because the sermon can't start with, don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, don't, here's ten ways not to do that, don't stand in the way of sinners, and here's ten ways not to do that, don't sit in the scene of the scornful, here's ten ways to do that, because we've missed the, the beauty, not only the beauty, but the power, the transformative power that comes in the meditation. I realize, first, this is about Jesus. And that he has done this. Jesus never walked in sin once. He never took a stand for sin once. He never sat in the sinful place of perspective once. Jesus kept God's law perfectly. Jesus was the one who meditated on God's law day and night perfectly. And then he took his perfect record of that perfect righteousness, and in his grace he's given it to you and to me. And now you and I are united to the righteous one. We're united to the one who's planted like a tree. We're united to him. We're grafted into him. And then Jesus took all the judgment of the sinner, the wicked, the chaff, the dead chaff blowing away, blowing around, producing nothing. Jesus took all of that punishment. Jesus was the one. It said that we read it in Psalm 1 where where it says that the wicked won't stand in the day of judgment. Jesus stood in your way, in in your judgment that you deserve. He stood there. We're the wicked. But he took our, the punishment for our wickedness, and he's given us the reward of his righteousness. Jesus Christ is the righteous man of Psalm 1, and it's amazing. And because we are united to him, we are declared righteous. And that does something in us. The rescuing grace has a reforming trajectory. The grace that rescued us has united us to that tree planted by the streams of living water, and now there's something going on in us by the power of the Spirit that he is doing, that he began, that he'll complete, that he'll finish, as the Apostle Paul uh, wrote, wrote to us. And this is beautiful. When you look at verse 3, you'll notice that we get the picture of meditation. What does meditation look like? It looks like roots in the river drawing water. This is the picture of meditation. So the roots are, is, is, are our prayers and our meditation, and the water is the law of God that's sustaining us and bringing sustenance. When I say the law of God, here in, the, here in Psalm, it meant the, 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 specifically the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So when we say meditate on the law, we're not saying meditate on the crushing standard that is impossible for you to keep, because the good news is we're on this side of the cross, Christ has kept it. What we're meditating on is the law of God that has been kept by Christ for you, that's now a guide for you, that's actually like water that's going to nourish you and actually transform you and actually do something in you. Because Christ has done it. He's fulfilled it. This is the picture of meditation. It's not just knowing truth. It's, it's making it a part of yourself. That's what biblical meditation is. The root is in the water, and the tree isn't just, tra- isn't just transferring water from one place to another. The tree is being changed. This is the picture of our meditation. Us being changed. 
This is why we pray. As C.S. Lewis said, I'm not praying because it's changing God. I'm not even primarily praying to, 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 because of a, for a change in circumstance, though the Bible invites us to do that, and it's good and right that we do, and sometimes God changes the circumstance precisely in the way that we ask him to, and that's amazing and, and celebrated when he does that. But we're primarily not even praying that. We're primarily given this gift of prayer and meditation so that we change, so that united to the one who is planted by the rivers of water, that as we meditate on the goodness of the gospel, the goodness of Jesus Christ for you, that actually changes us. It actually does something in us, and it produces something in us. And so the meditation is drawing strength from the word just like water. This is what, what we get. And so as we're meditating on it, meditating on this gospel, the law fulfilled by Christ, it reminds us that we're loved. It reminds us that our lives are in God's hands. It reminds us, like Romans 8, 28 says, that everything in your life, all things, are working together for the good of your salvation and for God's glory, for those who are called according to God's purposes. It doesn't mean they're worked out the way we, we think or the way we understand all the time, but it means that uh, that's precisely what God is up to and what he's doing, and, it, and that nourishes us. But historically speaking, when it comes to prayer and meditation, the church has made two, fallen in two ditches, two errors, and I've made both of these. So I'm a great authority on what I'm about to say. Here's the two errors that I've made that historically the church has made. The first error is a, is a, a, a self-righteous error, a religious error, and the other error is a, is a rebellious error. The self-righteous error is to look at prayer and meditation and reading God's word in a legalistic way so that, you, so that we think that by doing this, we're somehow making God happy. Do you know this psalm, ironically, it starts out in the Hebrew, blessed is the man, happy is the man. It's rightly translated. So ironically, we, the, the, the religious mind says, do these things and make God happy. God has actually given you these gifts to make you happy. Because without him, you're not going to be happy. And so the, the religious thing is I'm going to do these things because, in order to, because I'm going to try and earn something. That's the religious side of it. So we reach for our Bibles and we're, we're all behavior, no savior. Because we've got to make God happy. We're all law, no gospel. So when we reach for the Bible, all the kids around the dinner table roll their eyes and cringe and go, Oh no, we're about to go to God's word. You know we've missed something. When the very thing that God has given, so that our hearts detonate like a bomb with thankfulness that our lives are in the hands of God. We know that we've, we've, and I've done this, so I'm guilty of it. So I don't mind shouting and yelling and moving my hands around and spitting about it, because I did this. If it becomes about that, you know, I've got to do this because I'm somehow going to earn something from God, and this is my religious duty, though it is duty, but we never get to the delight part, the kids go, oh boy. The other error the church has made historically is they've said, thank you for grace. There is no need to memorize God's word. There is no need for God's law. We don't need to know what God's word says because Jesus did all of it. Woo! Yeah! I'm not going to... Don't talk to me about teaching my kids the scriptures. That's, that's legalism. Don't talk to me about telling my kids, teaching my kids the Ten Commandments. That's legalism. That, what? The picture someone gives us is not legalism. It's like, this is how you keep your leaf from withering. This is how you go through life when all hell breaks loose and catches on fire. You're not blown around like the chaff. You're like, hold on now. 
You know, I, I, this, is the, this is the beauty of what Psalm 1 gives us, this gift. Because of what Jesus did, because of his perfect life and his death and his resurrection for you, this means of his grace for you, the prayer and meditation. And not for earning, for enjoying. So we've got the, the, the religious ditch and the rebellious ditch, but oh, would God do a work in all of our hearts that we don't end up in any of those ditches, but we've got, we don't have a religious or a, repent, uh, a rebellious heart, but a repentant heart. A repentant heart that says, I want to pray. I want to meditate on God's word. I want to fill my mind with the goodness of God so that it comes out my pores and it begins to reorient my heart. And everything. That's why Psalm 1 is first. Because we're not ready to pray until our hearts are reoriented. And we can't pray until our hearts are reoriented because otherwise our disoriented hearts dialed into all of our sinfulness and our selfishness and all curved in on ourselves, are going to pray out of that. So we're given the beauty of meditation to reorient our hearts and our minds. And like learning any other language, prayer is a, prayer is a language that we pray. Prayer is a conversation that God started that we're responding to. Prayer is a conversation because God moved toward you first in his great grace. And he saved you. And so now he's given your, you his word. Not so that you read it and memorize it and teach it to your children because somehow there's brownie points in heaven for doing any of that. But because this is a gift of his grace. To quiet your heart in this world that is at constant unrest. And he's given you this grace. And this is how we learn the language. You can't learn Spanish unless somebody who speaks Spanish speaks Spanish to you. You have to hear the Spanish to know how to speak the Spanish. You can't learn French unless somebody who speaks French speaks the French to you. And then you hear it, and you ingest it, and you meditate on it, and you learn it, and you memorize it, and you speak it back. And we can't pray, Psalm 1 gives us, unless our roots are drawing from some water so that, they're, they're, so that what we're actually, oh God, would you help me? That the, our language of prayer is coming out of the power and the sustenance of God's word. And this is why we read it, and this is why we uh, meditate on it, because it's this great gift that he gives to us to strengthen us. The only reason we can come to God in prayer is because of the gospel. It's because of what Jesus did. We can't pray. I'll, I'll say it this way. I heard Tim Keller say this one time. It was brilliant. He said, you can't go into the bedroom of the king and ask him for a glass of water. But you can if you're his child. Prayer is a great gift of grace. You and I get to go into the bedroom of the king any time of day or night and ask the king for a glass of water because we're his kids. This is the grace of prayer. This is the grace of meditation. This is the beauty of what Jesus has done in the relationship that we now have with the... We have a father over us, not a judge. And so, as we pray, we, uh, we are reorienting our hearts and we're getting to know God and we're getting to know ourselves in relation to God. See, if you and I don't pray, we're not just breaking some sort of a religious rule. Hey, you're not praying, you're breaking the rules. If we don't pray, we're not relating to God like he's God. If I don't pray, I'm living in self-sufficiency because there's something going on in, in Paul Dunk's heart and mind that says, I don't need to pray because I've basically got this. And you know, if I'm honest, which I'm going to be, I mean, 
if I'm honest. No, normally I lie to you, church, but I'm going to be having honest moments. That's always a funny phrase. Why did I even say that? Okay, listen. I don't pray enough, okay? And when I say enough, I don't mean there's a, there's a precise amount, and if we all were just tried a little harder, we would hit that amount. What I mean is, I don't pray enough because I'm always slow to pray, because I always default into self-sufficiency. So I'm like, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try that, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try that, I'm going to try this, and okay, has it come to this now? I guess I'll pray, you know. My ability to be God is lacking, and now I'll go to God. That my heart wanders into self-sufficiency. You have different versions of this. I'm, I'm convinced I'm not the only one in this room that's slow to pray. Uh, but again, it, it's, it's a gift of grace. So I'm not burdening you with prayer and meditation. I'm trying to feed you. I'm trying to say, this is going to nourish you. This is what Psalm 1 gives us. How many of you parents have ever tried to feed a toddler that didn't want to be fed before? You know, you're like, I'm trying to save your life. You know, I'm trying to get goodness into you. You know, eat this and thou shalt live. You know, and the toddler's like, no, this is so inconvenient. I want to play with toys. And they're like, and you're trying to get the food in. You know, God is a loving father. He's not force-feeding his children. He hasn't given us prayer and meditation as some sort of a religious burden. So when we use the words, it's our Christian duty to pray, it is our duty to pray. But it's also my duty to love my wife. And it's not like, oh, jeez. Gotta love Susan, because it's my duty. It's my delight to love my wife. It's both. That's Psalm 1. It's the beauty of posturing our hearts to rest and receive from God's grace. So prayer isn't a mechanism for getting better circumstances. Prayer is a gift of grace so that we have the peace of God regardless of our circumstances. That we know that God is with us in our circumstances. Prayer isn't a tool that promises to eradicate all suffering from our lives if we only had enough faith. Prayer is a gift of grace that we know the God that transcends all suffering is with us in our suffering and is going to one day save us through our suffering and in the end is eradicating all suffering. Prayer is that gift that reorients and quiets our heart, gives us rest in a world that is at unrest. And I have been a tormented, confused Christian, and you have probably been a tormented, confused Christian, convinced that prayer was given as a mechanism to have a more favorable, favorable circumstance. And then when the circumstance doesn't work out on our timeline in the way that it was, we're confused. We have a crisis of faith because we've missed and not understood, oh, this is such a gift of grace for this trial, for this suffering. Emmanuel, God with us. God is with you. And he's given us this, the great grace and the great gift of prayer. So how does this prayer and meditation bless us with God's strength in this time of weakness? Look at the powerful contrast in this psalm. Strong tree, alive, growing, dead chaff, blowing around. Whichever direction the wind goes, it blows. This is the picture. So because Christ is the tree, we've been grafted into him. He's the man of Psalm 1. So now that we're grafted into that, we are now liberated and free to live in that kind of strength and rest and nourishment and security and stability. The, the psalmist is giving us two pictures. The tree is stable. The chaff is unstable. The tree isn't going anywhere, even in dry seasons. Remember where, where this is being written in the Middle East, where they have incredible dry seasons 
where it's incredibly valuable to have a tree planted by a river. And by the way, that word river, it, it can mean two things in Hebrew. It can mean river like you and I think of river, but it can also mean like an intentional ditch, an irrigation ditch, where they intentionally dig the irrigation ditch and intentionally plant the tree there. So that's why it says a tree planted. It doesn't say a tree that happened to have the luck of the draw and be near a river. It's planted. So because Christ is that tree and we're grafted and united to him, we're planted. And so this is why it gives us this uh, great hope. The tree isn't being blown over, but the, the chaff is blowing all over the place. And this is really grace on display because, it, because all of our meditation in, in the law is really what we're meditating on is the goodness of what Jesus has done, which is giving us the stability uh, to be able to stand. The other thing that we want to notice, which is amazing, is that because we are united to the tree, we don't read this passage and say, okay, how do I, how do I be this and not, how do I not be the chaff? You're not the chaff. You're united to the tree. But ironically, when you and I forget about the goodness of grace and we all do in our hearts wander and we fall and we sin, we end up living like chaff. Blown around by circumstance. We're one phone call away from losing our minds. We're one situation away from, that's it, and my heart is that. We can live in that. I mean, the whole world is living in that. And what is being offered by God's grace is when everything is on fire, planted, resting, trusting, peace. Now, neither you nor I, starting with the preacher, I'll start with me. I wish I could stand up here and say, church, I'm so mature and sanctified. I never blow around like the chaff. I mean, I used to 10 years ago. But, you know, I went to seminary, so now I'm... No! I blow around like the chaff when I fall into my sin, just like you, in our anxiety and our worry. But here's the good news. Notice verse 3 says that it bears fruit, but there's a phrase there. It says, in due time, in season, which means you're not going to bear fruit 24-7, seven days a week, 12 months a year. You're not. You're not. Don't burden yourself with thinking that, hey, if I just somehow, you know, get my sanctification together, I'm just going to be bearing fruit all the time. And my life is just going to be result after result after result of living in peace and harmony and, 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 and faith and love. And I'm just going to be... No, I mean, it's in, it's in due seasons that the tree is producing fruit. Yet, here's the good news. Even though you, neither you or I are producing fruit all the time, here's the good news. Christ is the only one that produced fruit all the time, which is why he's the, which is why he's the only one that qualifies to be, for someone to be about. But it, look at what the end of verse 3 says. It says, its leaf will not wither. It's good news. That means even when you're not bearing fruit, you're being sustained, you're being strengthened, you're being nourished. Even when you say, I can't believe this is the state of my life, this is the state of my heart today, this is the state of my mind today, this is where my emotions went, this is where my thought life went, this is about, I can't believe it. Your relief is not withering, you are sustained. Why? Because you're united and grafted to Christ, the tree. And so you go back to that place of prayer and meditation with no condemnation, but with a heart of repentance. Oh God, forgive me, a sinner. No condemnation. And now you're able to relate to each other with that grace. 
So we don't create a culture in the church where it's like, well, we're all supposed to be bearing fruit all the time, and we all know that. And this was a really lousy week for me, so whenever anybody asks me how I'm doing, I'm just going to say, hashtag blessed. I'm not going to tell you what's really going on in my life because I'm supposed to be a tree planted by the rivers of water who's, you know, who's bearing fruit all the time. But the text doesn't say that. It says your leaf is never going to wither, which gives us great honesty with which to relate and to love with each other when we say, you know what? This week, I kind of lived like chaff. But thank God, my leaf is not going to wither. Jesus is not abandoning me. This is the good news of being grafted into Christ. That when we fall into sin and we live like the dead chaff, and we do take on the counsel of the ungodly, and we do take a stand and defend our way, our, our sinful way, the way of sinners, and we do sit in the seat of the, of the scoffers, then we contemplate and we pontificate on things that are contrary to God's law and God's way, and we're not loving our neighbor with that. When we do all of those things, the good news is Jesus doesn't go, whoa, all bets are off. It, it's over. You've just demonstrated that you are not like a tree planted by the rivers of water, and so I'm now withdrawing my grace from you. No, the good news is that we are forever united with our great Savior. Derek Kinder, who's an Old Testament scholar, he taught at uh, Oak Hill Seminary in London when he was alive. Um, he was born in 1913, but he died in 08, and he was brilliant. And one of the things he said about Psalm chapter 1, about the grace of God in prayer, is he said, and I quote, The tree is no mere channel, piping water unchanged from one place to another. It's a living organism that absorbs it, and it produces something in due course, something new and delightful, proper uh, and kind to its kind. And because we are united to Christ, that is a description of who we are. And the good news of all of this is that because we are united to Christ, we are blessed. That word, that word blessed there, we have peace, we have joy. That word blessed means you're in a condition to be congratulated. That's how the Hebrew reads. You're so blessed, you're in a condition to be congratulated. But you have all had situations where you're like, this thing is going on in my life, or my marriage, or my relationships, or my children, or my job, or my body, and I don't feel like I'm in a position to be congratulated. But again, you see the beauty of Psalm 1. It's because despite everything that's going on, you're united to Christ, and now you're in this blessed place where there's a strength that is available to you in that time of dryness, when normally your leaf would wither, and your soul would wither, and your mind would wither, and your heart would wither, and you'd You'd, you'd get the news from whatever was occurring and you'd blow around like chaff. The good news is, no, 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 no. You're blessed. Despite all of this, grace of Christ coming and nourishing you and strengthening you and strengthening your heart. And I close with this. The blessed life is not something that we create by our work and our righteousness. The blessed life is something we enjoy because of Christ's work and Christ's righteousness. And so the result of our union with Christ means that our hearts will more and more forsake walking in the counsel of the ungodly, forsake standing in the way of sinners, forsake sitting in the seat of the scorned. Because what we love is transformed by the meditation of the grace of Jesus Christ and his love for you. So our prayer is much more than duty as the creations of God. It's our delight as children of God. Let's pray.